We're making our way through a new series, just the first few weeks so far, considering what, it, what the faith of the gospel really is. Now, last week, we saw the Bible's teaching on what we are and what we deserve in our sins. Let me just remind you. We saw from the Bible that sinners bring the hatred of God upon themselves. And we make ourselves to be God's enemy. We read very clearly in the Bible that the soul who sins shall die. We read that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. The wages of sin is death. And this is why we need salvation. And the teaching of the Bible, indeed the central theme and message of the Bible, is that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners by means of his own death in their place. In the Old Testament, this salvation is pictured in many ways. We thought about some of them as we read through Hebrews 9. Some of the clearest pictures in the Old Testament, for example, are things like the lambs that were killed by the Israelites when they were in Egypt and their blood sprinkled on the door frames of their houses. And that blood would save them from the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn. The death and blood of one saving another. There was that sacrificial system established by God through Moses where animals were put to death on behalf of the people and the shedding of blood is necessary for the atonement and forgiveness of their sins, demonstrating just what a serious issue sin is. You have the picture of David killing Goliath. What? Yes. A real event in which one man represents the entire nation and the victory of the one is accounted as being the victory of them all. Didn't that happen at Calvary? There are prophetic words in the Old Testament regarding Christ. Very many words. Abraham, just before God stopped him from sacrificing his own son Isaac, in the mountains of Moriah, declaring that God himself will provide the lamb. Psalm 22, which begins with words which Jesus himself quoted when he was on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And later on in that psalm provides a vivid description of one being crucified and includes details of things that would actually happen at Christ's crucifixion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Psalm 22. And then probably we can say quite comfortably the pinnacle of them all is Isaiah chapter 53. The one who would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Wounded for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Like sheep we've all gone astray. Turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of all these things in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say, it's worth remembering that when we consider God's salvation through Christ, it helps to remember three particular things. First, there was an event in history when Christ was crucified when he actually accomplished something then and there for sinners. On the cross, he actually saved his people from their sins. He did it then, 2,000 years ago. But salvation also involves today. Because something needs to happen to you and me as sinners that brings us into the knowledge and experience of that salvation so that it it applies itself to our conscience and to our heart and to our mind and we enter into a meaningful reality of it now you have the assurance that when you die you will be with Christ and that leads us on to the third aspect that there is a final and ultimate state of salvation which awaits you in heaven. We all know we're not the complete article yet, are we, as as believers and as children of God, but we will be one day. He will finish and complete that work. And Jesus is preparing a place. You can't enter until his second coming. But when he comes, he'll take us. So salvation is something that Christ has done Salvation is also something that Christ is doing. And salvation is also something that he is yet to do. In that, there is a finality and a conclusion to our salvation, which is assured when Christ returns and takes us home. So salvation is about an historical accomplishment and a present reality and a future hope. Salvation embraces all of those things. Now before we consider how God brings us into the reality of those things today, we're going to spend this Sunday and next, God willing, looking back. Let's remind ourselves what it was Christ did, what it was that Christ actually accomplished on our behalf. Next week, we'll look at the significance of Christ's resurrection and exaltation as necessary to our salvation. It wasn't only about the cross, as important as that is, but we'll make that our focus this morning as we look at the cross. Christ's suffering and death. 
what that actually achieved in atoning for our sins. Now, if you hear last week, I had one long point followed by two short ones. This week, I've got two short ones followed by one long one. And I'm borrowing three headings. Um, if you've got a copy of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology on your bookshelf at home, you'll find these headings in his book. So we're going to think, first of all, about the cause of the atonement. Then we're going to think for a moment about the necessity of the atonement. And then we're going to think, thirdly, about the nature of the atonement. So first of all, the cause of the atonement. Let me remind you that it was God's love that took Christ to Calvary. God so loved the world that he gave. And he gave Christ. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still in our sins, Christ died for us. Here is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, come to that word later, the propitiation for our sins. Paul writing to the Ephesians says, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the love that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. When people ask you, where is this God of love of whom you speak? Where is there any sign of a God who loves us in such a world as this? Dozens of people just gunned down in New Zealand. Where is your God of love? People rightly ask. The answer is very simple. The answer needs no clever arguments. You simply point them to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say to them, here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness like a flood, when the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. That's what you tell them. That's where you point them. And pray for them. Pray for them that God, by his Spirit, might do a work in them so that they can comprehend with all the saints what is the width and le length and depth and height to know the love of Christ. That's the cause of the atonement. God's love, his mercy, his compassion, his grace for a sinner like you, for a sinner like me. If you're not a Christian this morning, what is stopping you from knowing this love? It's love that sent Christ to Calvary for you. Why would you not come to him? 
Secondly, the necessity of the atonement. Now, when I use the phrase, the necessity of the atonement, I'm not suggesting that God is somehow under obligation to save someone. God isn't under obligation to save anyone, actually. For example, all the evidence of the Bible points to the fact that no salvation of any kind has been established by God for the fallen angels. None whatsoever. All of them are reserved for everlasting judgment and condemnation, according to the scriptures. So when I speak of the necessity of the atonement, I'm not suggesting that God is somehow obliged or forced or coerced to save us. He isn't. Paul says at the start of his, lesson, his letter to the Ephesians that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Why? Why? According to the good pleasure of his will. God chose to do it because it was good to God to choose to do it. And that's as much as anyone can ever tell you. It was good to God to choose to do it. And he did it to the praise of his name. Without any external force or persuasion, God in eternity past purposed and decreed to save for himself a people. Within his own decree was the manner by which sinful men and women were to be saved. And that required that the full penalty for sins must be paid and that his holy and righteous justice must still be satisfied. Sins must be atoned for somehow by someone. They can't just be pushed aside or swept under the carpet. On that basis, and only because of that, the atonement for our sins is necessary. And God purposed to achieve that atonement through the suffering and death of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our substitute. And we'll return to that theme shortly. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is in Gethsemane just before Judas is about to betray him to the religious leaders. And Jesus pleads with God, Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. But it was not possible for God's purposes to change because atonement for sins was necessary. Later, after his resurrection, as Jesus walked with the two disciples on the Emmaus road, what did Jesus say to them? Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? He had to. Even looking back on it, Jesus said, I had to go through that. It was the only way. Hebrews 2, therefore in all things, he had to be made like his brethren 
He had to be. He had to become flesh and blood like us. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to come as God incarnate. He had to be the word become flesh in order that he could atone for our sins. We read earlier from Hebrews 9. Let me just pull a couple of phrases out from that passage that we read. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place. Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Sin cannot be dealt with. There was no other way of salvation. There is no other way of salvation. He is the way. No one comes to the Father except through him because he alone could atone for our sins and he alone has atoned for our sins. All of the Old Testament had been pointing forward to this one great event by which, interestingly, the vast majority of the world now regulates its calendar. The atoning work of Christ, absolutely necessary. There was no other way. But what exactly is it? What exactly was it that Christ achieved at Calvary on our behalf? What is the nature of this atonement? Well, just before we get to his sufferings and his death, I want to mention, first of all, Christ's perfect righteousness, because this is very much an important part of the whole. Christ's perfect righteousness. Now, this is significant on two counts. Firstly, Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament requirements that the animals brought for sacrifice as sin offerings must be without spot and blemish. They had to be as perfect as you could find. They had to be the best of the best. Now Christ had always been eternal God. But in his incarnation, he was born as the God-man. One person with two natures, fully God and fully man. And the Bible tells us that as a man, he was tempted in every way, just like you are, just like I am, yet remained without sin. If he'd had sins of his own, he himself would have needed a saviour. But he had no sins of his own. He was the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. And so he was able and qualified to bear your sins and mine because of his perfect righteousness. But there's another aspect to it as well. That perfect and sinless life that Jesus lived is accounted by God as becoming our righteousness at our conversion. The gospel is about my sin being placed on Christ, yes, but it's also about Christ's righteousness being imputed to me. 
So the Bible tells us that Jesus was born under the law. Jesus, as a man, was required to keep the law of God, just like any other good Jew. He was required to keep the law of God, just like all men and women are, actually. Because the Ten Commandments apply to every man and woman who's ever walked this earth. And his own testimony was that he hadn't come to destroy the law and wipe it away, but to be the fulfillment of it and to keep it perfectly and to keep it completely. And as he was about to be baptised by a rather stunned and perplexed John the Baptist in the River Jordan, who's thinking, uh, this should surely be the other way around and you should be baptising me. What did Jesus say? No, John, you must baptise me. It is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. I have to go through this. I have to live this perfect, sinless life that no one else on the face of this earth is able to live because they are going to need this righteousness which I am going to earn on their behalf. You and I, all of us, are guilty lawbreakers, but Christ is the innocent law keeper. He lived the life that you and I should have lived, but we cannot his righteous life as a man is imputed to the Christian man or woman. God looks at me. And here's the most remarkable thing. He looks at me and he looks at you and he sees a perfect life. How can he do that? Because it's not my life he's seeing and it's not your life he's seeing. It's not my righteousness he's seeing. It's not your righteousness he's seeing because we have none. But he sees the righteousness of Christ that has been laid on you like a royal robe. The righteousness of Christ is yours. Listen to Paul. 1 Corinthians 1. Of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom and righteousness for us and sanctification and redemption he says to the romans for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous we are the made righteous ones some might consider that to be a, a very proud boast, but of course it isn't. Because it's what God has done in his great mercy and grace for each one of us. Paul's own testimony, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. I can't achieve it. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God, by faith you see this atonement is going to be achieved by this righteous sinless lamb of God whose very righteousness will become ours and it's this perfect one this sinless one this completely righteous one who is going to suffer and die and that's what makes his suffering and death all the more poignant 
because he really did not deserve any of it, did he? We are the ones deserving. But he stood in our place, deserving none of it himself. And so we read of Christ's sufferings. Well, we read earlier from Isaiah 53 a few of those well-known phrases which so accurately describes the suffering of God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, his suffering, of course, concluded and had their culmination in his death on the cross. But all of his sufferings, all of his sufferings were on our behalf. When Jesus was in Gethsemane, Matthew tells us that Jesus began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Just the very anguish he was going through in Gethsemane felt like it could kill him. Such were his sufferings. Jesus on many occasions described the punishment of sin as being a place of eternal torment in his own teaching ministry. A furnace of fire. A place of great wailing and gnashing of teeth. If he is to make atonement, if he is to stand in our place, he has to take that suffering that should be ours. It's not just about the death. It's about the suffering too. That's why Isaiah begins with that great phrase, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. His ministry began with suffering as he went 40 days without food in the wilderness, tempted by Satan. Hebrews 5 tells us that he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. which actually is still the principle that God uses in our Christian lives as well. I've already mentioned Gethsemane as the crushing burden of bearing our sins pressed down on Christ. Even there, the unbearable strain and anxiety of soul that Christ endured in the garden as the reality of all of our guilt and shame and sorrow being laid on him came into view. He could hardly bear it. Nothing physical had happened to him. But he felt like he was about to die. And then he was arrested. And then the mocking and the abuse began. He's put in chains. Severely flogged. Clumps of his beard torn from his face. A crown of thorns beaten down into his scalp. Falsely accused. How he suffered. And then came the crucifixion. And he did it for me. And he did it for you. I'm not going to regale you with the gory details, but it was brutal. It was barbaric. It was slow. It was meant to be. And just for good measure, they stripped you naked first and did it in public. Just to act as a deterrent. You 
you'd better hope the Roman executioners hadn't got out of bed on the wrong side that morning because sometimes it's recorded it could take men days to die hanging on a cross. If they were feeling merciful, they'd come and break your legs so that all of your weight pulled down on your outstretched arms and it put such pressure on your chest you couldn't breathe and death was hastened. Of course, they came to do that to Jesus, but they had no need to because the reality was they did not take his life from him. He gave up his own life on the cross and breathed his last. He had said, I will lay down my life. And he did. They did not take his life from him. He gave it for you. And as if that were not enough for a man to endure, there was this spiritual aspect of God's wrath being poured out upon him. All of those Old Testament passages which, which speak of God's fury against sin. We, we looked at some of them in Ezekiel, haven't we, in the evenings. God's hatred of sin. His anger burning hot against sin. And here is Christ his own son, the one who has been in eternal and perfect fellowship with his father and because of love, in obedience, puts himself in the place of sinners, lays down his life for his sheep and the father pours out upon Christ the penalty and the punishment that should fall on us. This truth of Jesus paying the penalty for our sins as our substitute has been given the title penal substitution. If you ever hear that phrase, that's what it's talking about. It's a very simple phrase, really. The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered the penalty as our substitute. I need to warn you, there are some who call themselves Christians who deny this teaching today. They say that a God of love would not possibly, could not possibly do that to his own son. Christ's death, they say, was merely voluntary on his own behalf. Just to show us the extent of his love. Just to give, an, just to give us an example of selfless love, but that's all. Well, I hope you can see that that view from all the scriptures that we've considered already, that view just does not stack up against the Bible whatsoever Graham read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15 I've got it written down in my own notes as well Christ died for our sins Paul couldn't have put it more simply or straightforward and those many references like in Hebrews 9 about Christ shedding his blood for us on our behalf what if there were verses which link together the two ideas of Christ dying for our sins on the one hand and being our righteousness on the other. Well, you'd want verses like these. Christ also suffered once for sins, the just 
for the unjust that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In drawing to a conclusion, I just want to say a few more things just for a minute or two. First, can you see and have you noticed the way the Bible speaks about Christ's suffering and death as having actually achieved something, not merely being the potential for something? He actually did something when he died. He actually accomplished something when he died. There on the cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ dealt with your problem of sin. He did it. Regarding Christ, the Bible speaks of sacrifice. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He did it. He actually did it. Regarding Christ, the Bible speaks of propitiation. What does that big word mean? It's a simple word, really. God requires that our sins be atoned for. And Christ has done it so that God's justice is satisfied. God, the one whom God sent forth to be a propitiation by his blood. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He actually did it. Regarding Christ, the Bible speaks of redemption and ransom, the price and the wages of sin being paid in full in order to buy us back. The Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Now listen, either the ransom has been paid or it hasn't. Which is it? It has. He paid it. In him we have redemption through his blood. We have it because it's done. Regarding Christ, the Bible speaks of reconciliation. Our sins separate us from God. We've estranged ourselves from God We've made ourselves to be his enemies, but he has restored us to himself by means of Christ. Now all things are of God, says Paul, who has reconciled us to himself. Not might have, could have, may do. Has, it's done. It was done at Calvary. And finally, can you not see that you cannot ignore him? You cannot ignore him. If this is who Jesus is, if this is what he has done, he demands your full attention. He demands a response. What will it be? The Bible shows you so clearly your need of salvation. It presents to you so clearly the full atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're only just getting going in this series. You need this salvation. You must confess before God that this really is your greatest need above everything else. And you need this saviour. 
and you must turn to him confess your sin and trust in this Lord Jesus Christ and in all that he did for you at Calvary.